Ahoy, and welcome to the Open Journal Blogcast. Here we're going to be talking about mental health and all things related. That includes illness, wellness, stigma and support, and most importantly some of your very own personal stories. We're going to be covering projects, campaigns, education, starting conversations, and looking at some of the tools that support our well-being as well. I'm Mike, and while I'm being mindfully mindless, hopefully myself and my amazing guests will be able to show you you're not alone out there. These are real people. They do have struggles. And it starts to get on my nerves. I just shut down. So many people suffer from mental illness. To get the word out that men have got to start talking. So I told everything and her face dropped. A lot of people don't understand the depth of the situation, so mm. they can't appreciate, yeah. It's difficult dealing with our minds, and the suicidal thoughts were back. People knew that there was something not right, but they just never really said anything or probably felt like it wasn't their place to say anything. You're not depressed, it's, it's all in your head. That's probably the statement I've had people say the most. I mean, this, this, this shit is real and it's hard, it's exhausting. And I think people realise how helpful that one conversation can be just to figure out why you are feeling the way you are. Not only did this help me to write it, mm. it potentially might have helped some other people as well. So it sort of started from there. So many people think they're alone. And then you hear other people talk about it and they think, oh, that's, you know, that's so brave or I could relate to that. Um, and then they want to talk about it. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name's Mike and this is Open Journal. Thank you so much for joining me today and being part of our conversations. Today I'm delighted to be joined by a new guest. Casey is with us and we're going to be talking a little bit about her lived experience, her insights, the conversations that she's been part of, uh, the work that and experience that have gone into her writing the book The Bad Girl's Guide to Better. Um... We talked about a few different things. We talked about kind of stresses, stigmas, anxieties. Um, also kind of looking at the different types or different levels of conversation and sometimes the need to maybe destigmatize or, or reword or relanguage and repurpose those so that we can all understand what's being said. So really interesting to hear Casey's experience as a writer, an author, but also as a, a journalist and as someone converting conversations from maybe experts to professionals to service users to the general public. Um, so yeah, really interesting conversation. I hope and I know that you'll enjoy listening into this one. As always, the links to Casey's work can be found in the show notes, but also at the end of our discussion as well. So please do go and follow her and find out about what's going on. Uh, and if you want to have a look at the book as well so the bad girl's guide to better is out and available now in the uk so we'll have some links for that available as well i really hope you enjoy this week's episode and as always if you are interested in coming onto the podcast in the future yourself i am now booking in guests for next year for 2022 so if you're interested feel free to have a look at the website or get in touch um, you can find out information about being a guest on the website, which is openjournalbc.com. Nothing more to say. Um, I'm going to join you in to our conversation and I look forward to speaking to you again very, very soon. Here's this week's episode.
I was I was going to start off with a good morning, and it feels a bit weird to say good morning. Now. <laughs> um, I, hello. <laughs> Hi. Uh, it's it's really nice to to sit down and have this opportunity to chat across quite a lot of land and some sea <laughs> and some other stuff as well, probably in between. Um, mm-hmm. How's your how's your last kind of week been, Hazy? Do you know what I can never remember. I cannot remember when people ask me, how was your weekend? I cannot for the life of me remember what I did. And I think that's severe sleep deprivation from having two small children or early onset Alzheimer's. So I'm hoping that it's the former. Mm. Uh, But look, generally, I can't complain. Perth, I'm living in Perth at the moment in Australia. Perth's pretty open and free, certainly compared to the East Coast at this point in time. Uh, And the weather has been lovely. I've had lots of family time and lots of really nice time with my friends. So I, I cannot complain. Oh, that's it's nice to hear. I think it feels like at the moment there's a lot of trying to make the most of those social opportunities if we've got them, mm. because everyone's quite cautious of where we could be going in the winter and, and what, what that means. And obviously it's different in different countries. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely feels like the last month, maybe maybe two months have been like, OK, like, can we go and see people? Let's go and have dinner and, and see people because just don't know what's coming yeah uh, and I guess particularly when we're sitting down to speak a little bit about kind of mental health and well-being and things related to that that social side is going to play a real effect on, on kind of how you feel definitely I, I couldn't agree more I think uh, social well-being is is vitally important we know that that connection piece uh, is is incredibly important for our happiness but also for our health and I've done a lot of work in that space certainly that's what has been shared with me again and again and again by experts as a journalist. And so I I work quite hard on that piece. I have a small number of really good friends uh, and I I work really hard on those relationships. Awesome. I think, yeah, interesting to hear kind of that reflection on that research that you've done as well through your professional roles into into mental health and wellbeing and... um, that loves to come across in the the work you do kind of as a journalist but also as a writer and mm. in a few other fields as well it feels like you're someone that is um probably involved in quite a lot of different conversations uh around health and well-being and i guess that must be quite interesting as well the different kind of scales or levels that they might go to um yeah, I don't know if you're able to tell us a little bit about how they differ just in your professional world. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been a health journalist for about 15 years. And when I started in Australia, we didn't have very many clinicians who could really speak at a consumer level. There were a, a couple and, and fast forward 15 years and there's a lot more now, a lot more media doctors and people who are very used to speaking to consumers and therefore not dumbing down the information in any way, but but purely speaking um, in a language that consumers or patients or people can understand, um, not doctor speak, if you will. Mm. Um, and I have the real privilege 
these days of facilitating a lot of conversations between healthcare professionals, so really speaking at that doctor level uh, or at that clinician level, but also a lot of conversations that are at consumer level too. And so I used to think of myself as this sort of conduit between clinician and consumer, and I found that really interesting. But actually, I play less of that role now. One of the things that I have absolutely recognised in all of those years is that consumers, patients, people are really savvy these days. We know more than we have ever known. I mean, the information available to us purely in our smartphones would blow our great-grandmother's minds. And I think that's amazing because we've got all of this incredible incredible information at our fingertips, but we've also got some really crappy information at our fingertips too. And it worries me that we have all of this incredible information, but I don't know necessarily if you look at the data around mental health, physical health, loneliness, financial well-being, all of those big themes in all of our lives, I don't know that we're necessarily that much better off for all of the information that we have. And so to take a, a, a long way around to answer your question, part of the piece that I find most fascinating is how do we get doctors to communicate in a way that might be different to how they may have done that previously? Because if we understand one thing, it's that if we keep delivering the same messages in the same way, we're always going to get the same effect. And one of the things that I love about social media is that we've really empowered um, everybody to have a bit of a platform, which, as I said, is awesome if they know what they're talking about and really potentially harmful if they don't. And so I guess these days I see my job as taking all of this incredible information from experts and then perhaps delivering it in a way that's more entertaining, more accessible um, and should really feel like, and, and this is absolutely the case in my book, but in all of the work that I do, I want my conversations to feel like lunch with your best mates with some wisdom thrown in. So I say come for the lols and stay for the wisdom or come for the wisdom and stay for the lols. I don't care. <laughs> Just come and stay. So hopefully it, it, everything that I do should feel like I'm speaking to you like you're equal, which doctors don't do particularly well all of the time. Um, and I think we've still got a little bit of a, a God complex around doctors. We put them on a pedestal and so information can feel really different coming from them. So I'm really fascinated by the way in which we receive information and how to improve health outcomes based on the quality of the information that we receive. It's really interesting to hear you say that because I was thinking when you're talking about like the I guess the information that's available online and through resources you think of historically um, that would have been through books and I think we would have I don't know if we would have made the, the assumption or been told that you know it's printed in a book so it is true and mm-hmm. I, I don't remember I mean it could be that I just don't remember but I don't remember ever being taught about thinking about how reliable or true is this information until we were talking about websites and at that stage, you start to think about who's published this. Why have they published it? What is the back? Is there a reason for that? I don't remember ever having that discussion before or even after about information that's published in a book or in a journal or something like that. Mm. It's just like, like you say, because a doctor or someone has produced this in a formal way, just 
that is true um not like there's yeah. variations or there's different reasons why people have published that um yeah it's a really interesting point to sort of pick up on it is but I, I think the other thing that's really interesting is not only do we do that with information that's printed I think we we can't deny the societal and cultural impact of the sharing of knowledge. It's what we've done for centuries and centuries and centuries. It makes us feel clever. It makes us feel powerful. It makes us feel helpful. And and when we're having conversations with, particularly with people that we care about, I think naturally we want to share information that we've read or heard or listened to, or that we think may help or benefit them in some way. And that's brilliant if the information is up to date, from a credible source, appropriate for that individual. And that's why doctors go through the training that they go through and counsellors and psychotherapists and those people train for a really long time to be able to deliver the information that they deliver. And not only that, then they have to keep it up by way of um, – you know, keeping up their uh, accreditation points and their ongoing um, education and knowledge. Um, and so I think we shouldn't deny the fact that we often will take information that comes from the people that we care about as gospel. So I use the example of, you know, if there are two nonnas and they're talking to each other over a fence and Nonna mm -hmm. 1 says to Nonna 2, my sister Beryl ate nothing but lemons for 10 days and she lost 10 kilos. Nonna 2 is going to, she trusts Nonna 1, she values her opinion, and she's absolutely going to take that information and share it with all of her other Nonna friends about the fact that Nonna 1's sister Beryl lost 10 kilos eating only lemons for 10 days. And so I just, I think as consumers, we need to get much more clinical about the way that we approach any information and where it comes from. And I, and I think we're getting better in the same way that we absolutely recognise when an influencer is selling us something now or when a politician is trying to get our vote. I think we are much better at identifying that. But health is, I would say, the most vital asset that we have. But I also think it's the most emotional because it's scary. You know, like maybe losing weight is is not um, is not scary, but looking after your heart so that you don't have a heart attack or avoiding getting cancer, like those things I think are, are really emotional things and, and they hold a lot of power in terms of our behaviour. So I think we need to be really careful about where we, about the information that we pay attention to and, and then what we do with it. Yeah, I think very, very true. And I think like you say, I'd like, I guess I like to think, but also do think that people are more educated and more aware of this now. And at least if you can't 100% spot something, you are aware that you're a little bit cautious of the material you're reading or that if it has a particularly heavy view stance, you're aware, mm -hmm. okay, so this probably isn't how everyone feels, but it is how this one person has interpreted something. Yes. Um, but it definitely, yeah, it definitely feels like it's something that is becoming more spoken about and hopefully that people are more educated on, on like you say, on the, the fake information that is shared, on stories that are just particularly personal. Like, like you say, like my experience of eating the lemons is this, but mm. maybe you're allergic. So it's not going to have the same reaction for you. Like <laughs> yeah. it's, it's understanding that personal experience is going to be different. Yeah. Um, and I guess in regards to 
um like that personal experience to hear a bit more from from you and to to your um your journey to to mm. today to like what's led you to kind of having this as a particular passion and and mm. feeding into parts of your career as well yeah so I studied journalism after school because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I went and sat at one of those like parent-teacher information sessions and they said, well, look, English Lit is her best subject. Uh, So we would recommend that she goes into something like communications or or journalism. And I thought that's fine. It didn't have a a very high kind of threshold to get into. So I knew that I could kind of cruise (laughs) through my exams rather than actually have to pull my finger out and make a real effort. And so um, I kind of fell into it. I have always loved writing. I have always loved speaking and having conversations. I'm a very naturally curious person and I have a real sort of thirst for knowledge. And so it was a good fit and a good steer by school to recognise that 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 was probably a smart move for me. And and not even sort of halfway through that degree, I recognised really quickly that whenever I was given any sort of task or assignment, my mind naturally wandered to wanting to write or speak or record about, about health and wellbeing. I was very interested in kind of people first pieces. I was always very interested in the patient story, but but it was always in that health and wellbeing lane. And mm. I grew up in Perth in Western Australia, which is where I am now. But I recognised that all those years ago, 15-ish years ago when I finished my degree, I recognised that there probably wasn't going to be the opportunities in Perth to be that specific. Absolutely, there would have been journalism opportunities, but to really focus my energies on health and wellbeing I would probably need to be on the East Coast. So um, I moved to Sydney and I was there for about 15 years. And I worked under a guy, a Scottish guy actually, called Dr Norman Swan. So he was Australia's first medically qualified broadcaster. So he was a doctor first, broadcaster second. Uh, And he effectively became my mentor. I worked under him for about six years and his incredible partner who's done a lot in the kind of consumer health space. Um, and, And from the two of them, I learnt almost everything that I needed to know in a range of mediums or at very least cut my teeth in a whole range of tasks and mediums, everything from uh, kind of running their business from the ground up, but also everything from a a real improvement of health literacy perspective. And Mm. so I couldn't be more grateful for having had that experience with them. And that was really my opportunity to forge my path in Australia, uh, in that sort of health and wellbeing journalism space. These days I've kind of broadened my lens a little bit. So um, I focus really on really the obstacle course of life rather than purely health and wellbeing. So I'm fascinated. I, I still really appreciate the medical side of things and I still do a lot in that space, particularly with healthcare professionals. But with consumer stuff, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the way that our mental well-being, our social well-being, our self-worth, our financial self-worth, our spirituality, um, our sexuality. I'm really interested in in how these seemingly probably used to be considered more peripheral pieces of well-being 
uh, drive our behaviours. And, and I'm fascinated by the fact that, you know, our behaviours are very much driven by emotion rather than logic. And and I think we're in a really interesting position with that now because we know more than we've ever known and yet I don't know that we're that much better off for it. And that says to me, after 15 years of asking the experts questions um, and recognising these sorts of trends in the data, there is a big gap between knowing and doing, and I believe that that gap is largely to do with the self-worth piece. You don't not pull on your sneakers and go for a walk because you don't know that you're supposed to exercise five times a week for 30 minutes as per the government guidelines. You do it because you're tired or you're sad or you're just bloody over it or so-and-so has been pissing you off or you haven't been sleeping well or whatever. But there are a whole range of other reasons that drive our behaviours and I'm really fascinated by what those levers are and how we might be able to to tweak them to get a better result for people. Because I think, you know, I as I said, I've been asking the brightest minds in Australia and, and some around the world questions for the last 15 years. And one thing that I know is that if we keep delivering the same messages in the same way, we are going to continue to get the same result. So one of the things that I try to do with my book and what I try and do with everything that I do is, is as I said, make it feel like it's more entertaining than it is educational. So I absolutely impart some wisdom, but it should feel like going and having a glass of wine with your best friend. I want it to be wildly entertaining or I'm not going to grab it and hold your attention. It's that, it's how the message comes across, isn't it? Like you say, it's yeah. that side of telling a story involving someone um, and I guess acknowledging that wider part of the of the self and and kind yeah. of what feeds into that and I think it's really interesting when you kind of use that analogy of of exercise um because like you say it is something that everyone is aware of and to some extent we are all educated on as well and yet it's still difficult to do mm-hmm. and when we're talking about um if we kind of consider the sort of the the, the mental health and the, the the kind of the well-being side that goes alongside that where we're at a stage where we are aware but we're sometimes lacking in the education and like well if there's gaps and we're struggling to get people to buy into the physical health side that we are educated on Mm. is it really a surprise that we struggle then with some of the mental health side and encouraging people to do mindfulness or activities that support their kind of their mental well-being when we're not even that educated on, on on that side so I think yeah really interesting point to bring up and the power of storytelling and and the way the message is kind of put across and I guess mm. your role just kind of acknowledging that you you have those conversations in very different ways through books through presenting through reporting like it feels like an acknowledgement of these are different ways to communicate and I enjoy and I'm good at all of them like it's it's having that balance isn't it of a I guess, a more modern way to communicate? I hope so. That's the intent. I mean, look, it's it's brutal candour. I mean, there are things in my book and in a lot of what I do that absolutely make my mother blush and make my husband stick his hand on his palm like this. Um, but 
I think it's such a shame that we're not more open and honest about, particularly about the things that we get wrong. Because when I was growing up, I honestly, honestly felt like everybody else knew exactly what they were doing. And I was the only one flailing around like an idiot. And I think that's part of the reason that it took me so long to get my shit together. And look, I'm only 37. And I I would argue that I definitely have it together now. Not that my life is perfect. Not that I don't get it wrong. Not that I don't fall in a heap. I fell in a heap yesterday. But I would argue that that broadly I have I have my act together now, but it took me quite a long time to get there. I mean, I've spent the majority of my 30s kind of piecing myself back together after a really volatile teens and 20s, and there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. But I think had I recognised sooner that nobody knows what the fuck they're doing, that would have served me particularly well. And also recognising that my thoughts are just thoughts and not who I am and that I have generalised anxiety disorder that I that I am medicated for, that I need to be medicated for, not because that solves everything but it allows all of the other good things that I was doing to get in because – I remember going to my doctor. I've only been back on medication for probably a year now and my second child will be two in January. So I was about six months kind of postpartum-ish and I remember going to my doctor and saying, I have no idea what's wrong with me. I'm bloody exhausted. I cry all the time. When my baby shouts or screams, I feel like I want to rip my skin off my face and throw myself out the window I stand there and stare at the sink full of dishes for an hour and I cannot will myself to action. I spin around in my room like knowing that there are things to do but not knowing how to action them. I'm exhausted but I can't sleep at night and so on and so forth. And she just took one look at me and was like, you (laughs) – we need to talk about, and I, I think I said to her, look, I'm walking, I'm speaking to my psychologist. Psychology is the the gold standard of care in, in anxiety. I, I was, and I know all this stuff because this is what I work in. I was like, I'm doing all the right things. I'm not drinking too much alcohol. I'm getting a bit of sleep. And I was kind of pleading my case. And she was like, that's fine. But none of that, when you've got sort of moderate to severe anxiety, none of that is going to make a lick of difference for you, particularly in the, at this point in your life where you're not going to get great sleep because you've got a new baby. And you know, you're, you are doing all of the right things, but they're not going to work if you don't then also support yourself with the medication. So fully appreciate that that's not for everybody, but honestly it was sometimes you need somebody to just give you permission to say you're not doing anything wrong. You just need a little bit of help and you might not need a little bit of help forever, but you just need a little bit of help for now. And, you know, rewind, so that was probably – yeah, probably a year or so ago, and then rewind another three months and I was going through a particularly challenging time with um, illness within my family Um, and spoke to my doctor again and they were like, listen, you're on the lowest possible dose of this medication. We know that you've got a really crap three, six, 12 months ahead of you, regardless of how things play out with this family member, you've got a really, really tough slog ahead of you. And I'd highly recommend us looking at your dosage. And I'm so glad that they said that to me because 
again, I'm doing all of the right things now. I'm exercising. I speak to my psychologist. I'm not drinking too much, but I really needed, I really needed that extra support. And so I'm not always fine. As I said to you, I fell in, fell in a total heap yesterday, got into bed, pulled the covers up, had to have a big chat to my husband, like just wasn't okay. Um, and, but now that happens and I think, well, you know what, you're doing all of the right things and it's okay to fall in a heap sometimes anyway, because doing all of the right things doesn't make you a bionic woman or person. You're still going to fall down and that's okay. Get into bed, forget about all of the work that you have to do, pull the covers up. I sat there and watched the Justin Bieber documentary. (laughs) So like things were pretty dire. (laughs) But, you know, I needed that. I needed that afternoon to just do nothing and just fall in a heap. I ate heaps of chocolate. I did all of, like, I just needed to hit the pause button for a sec. And I'm glad I did. I needed it. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. I think it's, I guess it's that acknowledgement, isn't it, of kind of the the stresses and the strains and the, the things that go on within our life regardless of a a mental health illness or certain struggles or symptoms but then if we've got that on top of what's going on in our life like you mentioned certain stages when you've got a newborn like it's going to be different to your usual life there are going to be added stresses or worries or situations your Mm. planned routine with sleep is going to be broken up and I think there still is that stigma around kind of considering actually can I do some extra stuff for me do I need to be compassionate to me do I need to be taking medication to help myself through this period Mm. um and I think there still is that like oh okay if you need that you you go and do that but don't talk to us about it don't tell anyone Mm. and I think that's again that's my my mindset of people are aware these need to happen but we're not quite educated or comfortable enough to hear about that and talk to you about it and really have those I guess like peer-to-peer conversations or friendship conversations about that when we kind of jumped back to the example you gave earlier about the oh I've taken this and it's helped with my diet and it's like well this (laughs) side of actually just talking about the things that support our well-being just like you say having a day where I didn't really do anything actually I just really needed that and it might be that some people need that every week or once a month or however often. And that acknowledgement mm-hmm. that actually, do you know what, like you're worth taking a day out for, like you need that. That's important. Um, totally. And I should just add to that. I didn't get there on my own. I would have never done that. But I spoke to my psychologist yesterday and she was like, you are exhausted. Like you need to go and book yourself in at a spa. She said, when was the last time you took a day off? Like no kids, no work, no nothing. And I honestly couldn't tell you the answer to that. At least five years because Mm. I have small children. So like days off just don't, they just don't really happen. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm not complaining about that for a second because I love them dearly. But I think when you become a parent, when you become a working parent, there kind of are no days off, particularly when you work for yourself. So because I am a freelance journalist, my I spend more time with my girls during the week and then I spend a lot more of the weekends working. I have a husband who works full time as well. So you just manage it as best you can. And so I just want to acknowledge that I would never have permitted myself that without her saying that to me. 
it was like she had to prescribe it to me for me to, and I went straight home and got into bed and pulled the covers up, but I would never have done that. I would have forced myself through the day. And I just think there comes a point when it's silly that we need that permission, but we do. And I don't know, I think we... I think we need to get better at taking care of each other and giving each other that permission. And in doing that, hopefully we'll kind of train us to get better at giving it to ourselves. Mm. Uh, yeah. I think like you say, there's a, there's a lot of the role of the, the friend or the carer or the person nearby um, and trying to build those up. But it's a, it feels like it's a, it's a community or societal change that we're, we're aspiring yeah. to there really um I know we've touched on quite a few uh, different points and I'm sure some of those are kind of echoed with with your book which we, we've touched on but it'd be interesting just to hear a little bit about that I know it's it's kind of recently uh, been mm. released so if you can tell us a little bit about the book yeah so it's called the bad girl's guide to better the bad is in inverted commas. It's ironic. I'm not suggesting that anyone is bad. I don't even think bad girls exist anymore. Uh, but I was trying to poke fun at what perhaps, I mean, I was absolutely what would have been considered a bad girl, which really just loosely translates to a party girl. But but the truth is that I spent many years feeling awful about myself and I don't think there's a person alive that can not that that doesn't resonate with in some way. And so what I did was wrote the book that I needed when I was growing up and it's framed around 16 life lessons I wish that I had learned sooner. And it's every it's very broad so it's everything from sex to relationships to money to fame to success and I kind of take each lesson to take a deep dive into that theme or that topic. Uh, it's not a memoir, you'll absolutely get some stories from me, but uh, there are interviews with incredible experts. I, I dig into the data, uh, but in a way that should have you crying with laughter. So uh, hopefully, I mean, I don't hope that people shed tears, but people tell me that they always shed tears in lesson 12 in particular um, and at the end, but the rest of the book really should feel like your big sister who used to be quite wild but is now quite wise is holding your hand and leading you through some of the shittier things that life has to throw at us. And interestingly, the feedback from the market has been not only a younger women who are yet to go through some of those things and younger men for that, for that, um, uh, where is my brain? Um, and younger men also have lots of those have been reaching out to me. Um, but it's a, a lot of women kind of and men my age and older. So kind of in their mid 30s up to sort of their six, mid 60s reaching out to me and saying like I had been carrying around all of this shame around this thing and you finally, finally empowered me to put it down. And so really the book is about making peace with your past so that you can make friends with your future. And so it's about bringing all of your previous selves along with you to be able to acknowledge that you don't get the light without the darkness and that actually the things that you've gotten wrong or the shitty things that have happened to you have only made you bigger stronger wiser better more empath more empathic kinder 
um, more understanding and and a better human being. And so embracing all of those things and working out how to carry them forward into your life in a way that is comfortable and doesn't feel like you're carrying around this big, heavy emotional backpack. What I want is, and I get messages like this every day, is I essentially hated myself while I was growing up. And so I really understand how that how that feels and there we hate ourselves for all sorts of reasons because we don't like the way we look or we don't like the way we sound or we don't like that thing that happened to us or we hate our family or where we came from or because we can't get a relationship or whatever it is we all have reasons that we dislike ourselves and my greatest hope is that somebody reads this book and puts it down and goes like fuck yeah I'm actually awesome and that's the message that I get more often than not and look I am not naive. I know that not this book, nor any book, nor any program or coach or practice or treatment or medication is going to be the golden bullet or the silver bullet that makes everything perfect in your life moving forward. But but the feedback that I'm getting is that this is one piece of the puzzle that's sorely, sorely needed by people. And it's such a privilege to be able to put that together. And, you know, I always said if nobody reads it aside from my two girls, heaven forbid something awful happens to me, they have a Bible that is their guide to life from their mum's perspective. And I feel so honoured that it's resonating with people in that way. I get lots of messages saying like, I read it cover to cover and now I'm dipping back to that one chapter because I've got to go in and have a really tough conversation with my boss next week and I really needed to look back at that or I'm thinking about reining in my drinking a little bit so I went back to lesson seven or it's time to start saving so I went back to lesson eight. So it's, um, yeah, it should feel like a therapy session crossed with lunch with your besties. That's what I hope. That sounds really, and I think I really like that, like you've got the the drop back into chapters. Mm. And I think that feels very much like the approach that kind of works with people in this sort of field where it's, I can read through and almost sort of like binge your book the first yeah. time there are. That's great. Um, but there will be parts that resonate or feel more relevant at certain stages. And I think being able to jump back into quite a focused chapter or setting rather than thinking oh somewhere in here there was Mm. the reference to Mm. it just makes it more like you say it's re reusable revisitable um as a as a toolkit for some people as well so I think that structure definitely works Um, and you know I get messages I got a message the other day saying thanks to your book my my daughter broke up with her douche lord boyfriend who we all hated and I'm like yes go you good thing I'm so glad you know like if it can do that for people that makes me so happy to that it is empowering people to get what they deserve like I think so often we I just think we sell ourselves short. It took me a long time to get to the point where I can sit here with you and with anyone and say, like, I deserve to be here. I have something to say. I have really good intentions and I do the hard work. And, it, I like, 20-year-old me can't even believe that those words are flying out of my mouth. And I don't think it matters whether we get there in our 20s or in our 50s or in our 70s, but my hope is that we all get there 
and to be able to play a tiny role in inspiring that journey for some people is just such an honour. Yeah, thank you so much for kind of sharing sharing those insights as well, not just in the book, but also today. I think it's been really interesting to talk through and just get a very short snippet of kind of some of the conversations you're part of and your kind of your your lived experience and viewpoints on certain things. Obviously, there's a lot more to discover about you and to talk to you about. So if people are kind of interested to find out a bit more, where are kind of some of the places that they can go to to find out about you? Yeah, so uh, I am on Instagram. I'm at Casey Beros, so C-A-S-E-Y-B-E-R-O-S. And then the book has its own Instagram account, which is the same as the title of the book, The Bad Girl's Guide to Better. So that's a good place to reach me. I respond to every message that I get uh, and I really genuinely love hearing from people. So um, there, my website is caseyberos.com and the book is available on Amazon and in some bookstores in the UK also. So easy to get your hands on a copy and I I want it to feel like a big warm hug. So I hope that one day I can get over to the UK. Obviously COVID got in the way of me being there for the launch. Um, But one day, mark my words, I will be there and I cannot wait. And we will have to go and have a beer or a tea. Well, definitely. Yeah, it's it's one of those things, isn't it? You feel like over the last sort of year and a half, it's we've built up the online connections and that's really, really good. But we have missed out on those opportunities to to meet and interact with people that would have been able to travel. Like it feels like not that long ago, we were saying the world is such a small place and it feels very different at the moment because yes. that that kind of travel and interaction has been restricted um but yeah so fingers crossed for the future and i think yeah definitely encourage people to go and follow you over on in- both accounts over on instagram and, and find out a little bit more about you and hopefully get some uh insight into the book as well but thank you so much casey for coming on and uh, for being part of the conversation today my pleasure thank you so much for having me These are real people. They do have struggles. And it starts to get on my nerves. I just shut down. So many people suffer from mental illness. To get the word out that men have got to start talking. So I told everything and her face dropped. A lot of people don't understand the depth of the situation, so they can't appreciate Yeah, It's difficult dealing with our minds. And the suicidal thoughts were back. People knew that there was something not right, but they just never really said anything or probably felt like it wasn't their place to say anything. You're not depressed, it's, it's all in your head. That's probably the statement I've had people say the most. I mean, this, this, this shit is real and it's hard, it's exhausting. Sometimes you need somebody to just give you permission to say you just need a little bit of help. And I think people realise how helpful that one conversation can be just to figure out why you are feeling the way you are. Not only did this help me to write it, it potentially might have helped some other people as well. So it sort of started from there. So many people think they're alone. And then you hear other people talk about it and they think, oh, that's, you know, that's so brave or I could relate to that. Um, And then they want to talk about it.